0: Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we want to worship your holy name. We have gathered at this evening hour to lift our voices to you in praise and in prayer. We have come to hear your word to us, to be encouraged, to be comforted, to be inspired but also to be challenged, indeed even to be rebuked for our sin and our wrongdoing. Father God, grant to each one of us a true spirit of repentance and sorrow. For we come before you confessing that we are sinners. We've done wrong. We've so easily been blind to your commands. We've been so easily disobedient to your laws. We share in a world that for so many is unjust, and corrupt, and oppressive, and we make our common confession before you now. We ask that you would grant us a true spirit of forgiveness, of renewal, of redemption, of healing. As we hear your word, open us to your spirit, that he may fill us. And empower us and resource us for your work, for your mission, to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in all his love and in all his grace. And come to us in the assurance that is ours through faith in Christ, in him crucified and risen and ascended. Help us to know that he is our saviour, the saviour that we need. And may we rejoice in that confidence and in that assurance. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old hymn which some of you may know, uh, an old favourite hymn by the 18th century English poet William Cooper. And the first verse of the hymn goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Some of you may know that. You've perhaps sung it in the past. But it's, it's a hymn that's caught people's imagination because of its opening line. God moves in a mysterious way. And there are many people who would say, yes, that's my experience. I find that God does move in a mysterious way. There are things that happen. There are circumstances in which I find myself. There are situations facing me and I I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what God is doing, if he's doing anything. He moves in a mysterious way. And I think that opening line of that hymn caught a lot of people's imagination and really... They could accept that. That was was their experience. But there's another verse to that hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. And it was that verse that came to mind when I was preparing this evening's sermon which is chapter 3 of Micah. I think some of you know that uh, for the last couple of Sunday evenings we've been looking at the book of the prophet Micah. and We come tonight to chapter 3, but let me recap a little bit on Micah before we start. Micah means who is like the Lord. And really in the book of Micah we have a wonderful revelation of God and his mind through his prophet Micah. He's one of the Old Testament minor prophets of whom there are 12. They're not minor because they're insignificant or unimportant or not influential or they don't speak with authority. They're minor in that they're much shorter than the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. They are much longer and the 12 minor prophets are much smaller and uh, Micah is one of the minor prophets. And I've always found it quite helpful when I think of the prophets, of thinking of them as God's spokesmen. They're God's spokesmen. They bring us God's word. They bring us God's opinion, as, as it were, on us. They bring us God's mind in the matters that concern us between us and God. Micah is a spokesman for God. And he does the usual two things that prophets do. The first, there is forth-telling, telling Telling forth the mind of God, telling forth the opinion of God, the word of God, addressing the situation as it is, forth-telling. The second thing that Micah does is foretelling, prediction, seeing years before they happen, certain key events, and we see that in the book of Micah. So he's God's spokesman, he's God's prophet who both foretells and foretells. And he exercises his ministry over something like 30 years in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now you need to remember your biblical history. After the death of King Solomon, the United Kingdom divided. There's Israel in the north with its capital at Samaria, and Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem. And thereafter the the history of of God's people is the history of these two kingdoms and indeed much of the time they are at war with one another and Micah exercises his ministry in the southern kingdom along with Isaiah, very much at the same time as Isaiah in the 8th century BC. And we're told right at the start of chapter 1 that he comes from a little village or a little town called Moresheth which is somewhere in the southwest. But much of his message, much of his word is addressed to the cities of Samaria in the north and Jerusalem particularly in the south. And one of the uh, commentators that I was reading when I was preparing this sermon said that you can look on Micah as a kind of country lad. He's from the rural area and country people can be very critical of the cities and often are. Now, I don't know if if some of you come from, from country areas And if you do, what you think of Oxford. But in a city, you can be pretty anonymous. In a city, you can hide. In a city, you can do pretty much what you want. People won't see as they did at home in the country areas. So perhaps there's a a measure of truth in that, that someone from a country or rural area can be particularly critical of the cities because they can see what's going on. And the two cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. Now in chapter one, if you remember and if you were here, Um, Micah brings a very strong word of judgment on the two cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, last Sunday evening when Matt Hutchins was preaching, he teases out a little bit of why uh, there is this word of judgment. And in the first part of chapter 2, it's very much centered on the greed and the covetousness of the people And in the second part of the chapter, it's centered very much on the false prophecies, the kind of false religion, a sham religion. And then chapter two ends with uh, what Matt called a a glimmer of light, uh, a glimmer of hope in those last two verses at chapter two, which point forward to the the coming of Christ as the shepherd king, uh, coming of the Lord uh, to his people. And, And so that ends a long passage of judgment with some measure of hope. And now in chapter three, we return very much to a word of pretty uh, straightforward and pretty grim uh, judgment. Uh, let's, Let's read it together. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh (coughs) from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. Therefore, night will come over you without visions, and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a, a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. I don't know what you make of that. It seems to me that it certainly starts with a very particular focus on the leaders and perhaps two categories of uh, leaders. The first category are the, the rulers, the kings, their families, their courts, their administration, their government and then secondly the religious leaders, the prophets and the priests. And Micah has a word of judgment for both of these. Let's look at them in turn. First of all, verses 1 to 3, the rulers, the leaders. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot like grim reading, a judgment on the leaders. Who was it who said there are no poor soldiers, only bad generals? I think it may have been Napoleon, but if you disagree, you better have a word with me afterwards. But leaders, in whatever field, carry particular responsibilities. They carry responsibilities for those over whom they have authority and over whom they have an influence, and on whose behalf they have to make decisions and for whom they have to have a care. Leaders, leadership, involves responsibilities. But clearly here, as in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, there is a gross abuse of power. The leaders have not used their office for the welfare of the people. Quite the contrary. They've abused their power. They've oppressed the people. They've exploited them. And we have a particularly violent and graphic description here. Almost as if the the rulers had become cannibals. And it's so bad that God turns a deaf ear. Verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. God turns a deaf ear and he won't listen to them and he won't answer their prayers. And this judgment on the leadership seems to me to center very much on this idea of justice. We find it here at the end of verse One, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil. And then again at verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that's right. There's a real focus on justice here and indeed on injustice on the part of the leaders. We see it in the oppression and the exploitation and the corruption it's well documented in Isaiah who lives at the same time ministers at the same time society was going bad it was corrupt, it had gone rotten from the leaders downwards and it centers on this concept of justice justice where good and evil are inverted good is called evil and evil Is called good. It's a great biblical theme. Justice runs right from the opening chapters of Scripture right through to the end. This idea of justice. God is just. God is perfect justice. Justice is the foundation of his throne, whatever else he is. God is just. And he looks to his people to be just. He looks to us to be just. He looked to his ancient, elect, chosen people of Israel to be just. Do you remember the promise that was made to them? All nations of the world will be blessed through you. That was what God raised up his people for, to be a blessing to all. All the nations of the earth. But repeatedly, as the Old Testament tells us, the people sinned. They erred and strayed. They broke the laws and the... They broke the commandments. They dishonored the covenant. They sinned and they were condemned. It runs right throughout this. This offense to justice runs right throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are some parables. Now, perhaps you'll be thinking, what are the parables of the Old Testament? We can think of the parables of the New Testament, of course, Jesus taught so extensively with parables. We associate Jesus with parables, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the parable of the sower. But there are parables also in the Old Testament. and One of them comes from Isaiah and is making a very similar point to the point that Micah is making. And because they exercised the ministry at the same time and much in the same place, the southern kingdom of Judah. Let me read you this parable and see the picture that's being painted and then listen to the end, the last verse, where there is the message of the parable. Some of you will know it quite well. It's called the Parable of the Vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard, I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled on. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then here in the last verse, the message. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This theme of justice that runs throughout the scriptures, God's people call to reflect his justice in their lives, in their communities, in their mission. And Jesus takes up the theme in so much of his teaching, the teaching of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The heart of it is justice. And then paradoxically, we see the justice of God, of course, on the cross of Christ. God is just. And we see his justice in that humiliating, cruel, grievous, dreadful act of Christ upon the cross in his crucifixion but it's there that we see the justice of God embracing the love of God Paul puts it wonderfully in a verse in that marvellous chapter 3 of Romans God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood he did this to demonstrate his justice so we are called to show justice we're called to be just. And that's just what the people of Samaria and the people of Jerusalem did not do, their rulers, their religious leaders. What about us? What about justice in our world? What about justice in your world? What about justice in our community? Well, if we look at the international scene, I think there's plenty of evidence and instances of violence and injustice and corruption. You'd be hard put to watch the news for any length of time or to read much of a newspaper without encountering, on the international scene certainly, great instances of injustice and the the many who are the victims of injustice in our world today. What about the UK, what about our own country? Well again, I think there are plenty of examples and plenty of instances of injustice. One of the things that I think should trouble us is the great inequality in our society today in this country. There are many who are very wealthy, but there are too many who are too poor. Huge disparities of wealth and income. Huge disparities of finance for the rich and the poor. And I think it's an indictment on us that we still seem to need our food banks for people to put food on. The table for their families. They have to have a food bank. What does that say for us in our society? Or what about our attitude to the alien, to the outsider, to the incomer, the newcomer, to the stranger? Do they get justice from us? It's a huge issue, political issue. You can think of ways in which we engage with others, others who come to us from outside. Do they get justice? what about homeless people? We've been thinking so much about them in this very severe cold weather of this last ten days or so. Homeless people in Oxford. When you learn a little bit about them, you realise how complex their lives are and how often they are the victims of their circumstances. Often ill health, mental ill health, or family breakdown or background. Where's the justice in them, sleeping out in the corn market? On some of the nights that we've seen over these last few days. And do we tolerate this? Are we offended by it? Or do we just are complacent? We don't see it, or it doesn't touch us. Do we share in a sense that our world is unjust and we share in its structures of injustice, political, social, economic? I often feel when we pray and when we confess One of our prayers of confession should be that we all share in these structures of an unjust world. And the sense that there are so many who are victims of this injustice and this corruption and this exploitation. And I think Micah speaks a very strong word to us here. A very strong, clear word. Because if there's one sentence that I want you to take away from this sermon tonight, it's this. Micah takes sin seriously. It's quite a good thing if you're Preparing a sermon or preaching a sermon, try and put it into a sentence. <laughs> one sentence. If that would be the one thing that you could get across, what, what what would it be? And I think this is the message of Micah, and it's the message of this chapter. He takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. God hates sin. He hates your sin. He hates my sin. And we've got to face that and face it directly. And Micah kind of forces us to face this directly if we take him seriously. It's not a popular thing to preach on sin. And Micah wasn't doing something that was really very popular in his day either. It's not a very helpful category, people would say. I've heard it said that if you tell someone they're a sinner, you just make them feel guilty. You make them feel inadequate. You cause more problems for them. But it seems to me that the concept of human sinfulness is one that is immensely honest and realistic. That is how the world is, and that is how we are in the world. And it takes courage to point it out. It's a costly thing to point out the sinfulness of the world. Micah does it here. He shoulders and carries the unpopularity of it in bringing this word. Of judgment on sin to the people. But there's one thing that we can say as we take human sin seriously. We recognize that it's an honest statement of our condition and it's realistic and there's a good thing about it it drives us to see the need of a saviour. If we really see our sin if we really count ourselves as sinners and unworthy in God's sight offensive in God's sight then it drives us to see the need of a saviour. And hallelujah, we have a saviour in Jesus. Well, Micah starts with his judgment on the leaders, and then he moves secondly to the prophets and to the priests, the religious leaders, you might say. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. Very damning of the religious leaders. False leadership. False prophecy. False teaching. One of the commentators said, what do you do when the preachers tell lies? And clearly here, They were bribed, in some sense, to say what people wanted them to say. Given gifts, money, I don't know. They were bribed to say what the people's itching ears wanted them to say. That lovely phrase that Paul's to Timothy about the false teaching in the New Testament church. People's ears were itching to hear certain things said. They wanted things said to them that made them feel comfortable, that made them feel good, that made them feel reassured. They wanted words that would encourage their self-worth. We know how good it is to get all those likes on social media. But, we oppose those who tell us the truth. We resist those who want to speak honestly to us and realistically to us. That verb which I came across to unplatform will be known maybe to some of you when you don't admit someone to speak to you because you don't agree with what they say or they're going to give you some offence or some hurt. That's what's perhaps happening here. And religion therefore becomes a sham, becomes an outward thing. No inward substance. False religion. Under false religious, religious teachers. False prophets. False preachers. False priests. You can go to church. You can say your prayers. You can give your money. You can worship God. You can be involved in the church's activities. But unless there's sincerity there. And honesty. And openness. It can be a sham and a false religion and that does seem to me what Micah is attacking here and so there's darkness and the silence from God they pray but there's no answer verse 6 therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination the sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them the seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced they will all cover their faces Because there is no answer from God. Behind a frowning providence, the angry face of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation of God. Well, I've said Micah shows great courage in being unpopular, as he no doubt was in his message. He spoke of sin as he saw it, as he believed it to be. And my friends, we need to hear that too in our world today. And if you think, well, that's maybe a bit depressing, I would say no, absolutely not. Because we have good news. The good news centers on Jesus Christ. We see our need, we see our need of repentance, but we also have a savior. We have one who died for us. Take away our sin to set us free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The smiling face of God when we trust him for his grace. Let's take comfort from one verse here. Perhaps the lightest verse in a dark passage, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power when the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah was filled with the Spirit of God. It gave him confidence. It gave him assurance. It gave him clarity in his message. It gave him comfort that he was saying the right thing. Filled with the Spirit of God as we can be filled with the Spirit of God as we open ourselves to him. to Come in and reform renew and heal and transform our lives. I was rather taken today, as some of you may have heard, the death of Roger Bannister, who was the first to break the four-minute mile, just not very far from here in Iffley Road, and my thoughts went to Eric Liddle, another wonderful athlete, tremendous success, and yet that was not the thing that he remembered, that was not the thing that he counted valuable in his life, it was the Christian ministry onto which he went in China and all the work that he did for the gospel in that place, open to the Spirit of God and the leading of God and the work of God. And so to the summary, the last verses of our passage, where these themes of condemnation of the leaders, their sin, judgment upon them, this is repeated. Hear this, you leaders. Of the house of Jacob, verse 9. You rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is the Lord not among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. The judgment on the leaders, the judgment on the religious people and their sham religion, the judgment on the capital of Israel, Samaria, and the judgment on the capital of Judah, Jerusalem. God called on them to repent. He's so patient, he doesn't want any to perish. The very first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel, repent and believe the gospel. God calls on us to repent and to find his mercy and to find his redemption. It breaks upon us and we rejoice and we are glad. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, there are other passages in Micah that pick up this mercy of God that breaks upon sinful people, upon their repentance and upon their faith. And of course, supremely in chapter 6, the prediction, the prophecy of the coming of Christ as the baby of Bethlehem. And let me leave this last thought with you. If we are quick, as I think we are, to accept the promises of God, why are we so slow to heed the warnings? And there are warnings here in, in Micah. We are quick, and rightly so, to rejoice over the promises of God, to be glad that there are so many wonderful promises that run through Scripture for us. And there are our comfort, and there are our strength, and there are our hope, and we embrace them. But logically and reasonably, should we... Also, not take equally seriously the warnings, as here in chapter 3 of Micah. There are wonderful, comforting promises. I love this one Cast your cares on the Lord, for he will sustain you. Psalm 55, quoted again by Peter in the New Testament. And we're all of us fearful, we're all of us anxious, we're all of us worried, we all of us have burdens, we all of us have cares. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. It's a promise. It's a wonderful promise. Or this one. Come to me, all you who are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find that my burden is light, and my yoke is easy. Another wonderful promise from the words of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We embrace words like that, we rejoice over them, and they comfort us, and we need them. Or those lovely words at the closing of Matthew's Gospel, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Which of us has not gone back to those words, and embraced those words, and rejoiced over them, and knowledge that Jesus is with us, it's his promise. Or that lovely promise that we quoted earlier tonight from Paul, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a promise, my friends, for us to savour and treasure and rejoice over. One more promise. There are so many, you'll have your own favourites. My wife and I have four lovely grandchildren, aged between four and and eight. One of the nice things for us when we're with them, and we're with them quite often, is to put them to bed. We learn, again... Perhaps we learned it in our own childhood, but bedtime can be a frightening time for children when the lights go out and the parents leave the room and they're on their own. And they quite often say to us, oh, Grandpa, do sit with me. Oh, Granny, do sit with me. And they have nightmares and they have bad dreams and they can wake up in the night. And It's a very, very real experience for small children. So we've shared this verse with them, and they love it and they, they can quote it now. Psalm 4 verse 8, in peace I shall lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's a promise. It's a promise that we can take to ourselves and lay to ourselves and make our own and rejoice over and be glad. And we have these wonderful, wonderful promises and they're our comfort and we go back to them again and again, but if we do that, why do we not heed the warnings? warnings of scripture, the warnings of God, God who has a frowning providence and yet behind that a smiling face. Next time in chapter 4 we look a little bit at the coming redemption that comes with Jesus Christ, something of the smiling face of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we ask that you lay the truth of this word in our hearts tonight. That we may see how seriously you regard our sin, each one of us. And then the sin of the society and community and culture of which we're a part and the world of which we're a part. A sin that manifests itself so much in injustice and in corruption and in violence. And we share in that in a small way at least. Open our hearts to the truth of that and point us to Jesus. Let us see that we have a need of a saviour and we have in him a glorious saviour. And we rejoice at that. This we ask in his name. Amen.